If you're like me, I'm sure there are times in your life where you are frustrated that the sanctifying process in your life is going slower than you would like it to be, and you long for that day when you're perfected. Well, we do have hope, as we'll see next. Join us. Longing for a holiness in your life, a sanctification that is evident, a a, a maturity in Christ that is evident in your life, we have some help for you today. Hi and welcome. This is Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard from Valley Bible Church here in Hercules. We're continuing our series called Life in the Spirit, focusing on Romans chapter 8. Today, looking at verses 28 and 29, those glorious verses that bring so much encouragement to our lives in Christ. For the details, here's Pastor Phil Howard with this edition of Truth For Today. Now we go to Romans 8, and I want to try to speak on what God wants to conform you to, and that He wants to conform you to look like a mature child of His, and a mature child of God looks a whole lot like Christ. And Christ happens to be the template and the portrait that God wants you to look like. The only problem is when God starts painting with you, he doesn't paint. God's a sculpture with us, for he picked you out of the quarry of sin, hard, inflexible, and stern, and nobody could see a David in the raw marble. And God begins to chisel on our lives until the image of his son finally emerges. And that's the process we're in in this present life. Romans says that uh, he's talking about we must suffer with Christ in 8.17. He announced that. He goes on to say in verses 18 through 27 that creation is groaning in this fallen condition since Adam and Eve fell. He goes on to say Christians are groaning because we're longing for a brand new body, an existence that is not in a sinful environment, and a body that is not subject to cancer and all of the uh, storms that come over a body. Then he said, even the Spirit is interceding for us. And then he makes this profound promise. And there's three things I'm going to look at today uh, in this matter of our maturity. Number one, the promise of God. I'm not going to go too deep in it because I'm convinced I'm not that deep. Romans 8, 28 is deeper than I could ever understand, ultimately. But I want us to look at the promise briefly. I want us to look at God's predestination. Some of you uh, can't even spell it, and you don't know what it means, so you reject it. But he says it in verse 29 as a comforting concept. You have been predestined for something. And then I want us to look at the portrait that you've been predestined to look like and what that image and what this likeness of Christ will look like. And I'm going to give you at least five things that I see you'll look like by the time God gets through with us. So, number one, uh, the promise of God. And we know in all things God works for us to get a promotion on our job. And a brand new car and the world's loveliest woman without a sin nature, because we've been saved on purpose. This is how we would like for it to read. But the all things includes the sufferings and the groanings. 
the negative as well as the positives. And what the promise says is several things. And I, since I don't want to camp there, I'm really going to 29. Let us just know this much about this promise. Number one, God is working in all the circumstances of his own child. God is at work in our circumstances. That promise will certainly say that. Whether you're in suffering, whether you're burying a loved one, whether you're getting a promotion, the negatives, the positives. And of course, this promise is very deep because the age-old question for atheism and agnosticism is, can a good God ever permit evil and work it toward his glory? That's the big philosophical tension of the verse. Does God work even evil for good? He says he works all things for our good. I just give you some stories just bypassing complete, complete studies in and of themselves. God does use evil for his glory. He permitted Satan to rebel or it would have never happened. He permitted you to become a sinner or you would have never been one. He permitted Joseph's brothers to sell him out. He permitted them to be full of jealousy and rivalry. He permitted him to be sold to a band of Ishmaelites to be carried down to Egypt. He permitted Potiphar's wife to set him up for a seductive scheme and then falsely accused him of trying to commit adultery with her, wound up in jail for something like 13 years. Was God in it? Was God in it? Joseph said so when his brothers were afraid after Jacob died that he would kill them. But in Genesis 50, he said to them, don't be afraid for what you meant to me for evil, God has worked for good. Job, was God in it? Buried 10 children in one day, lost all of your assets, and the only thing you were left with was a liability, and that was a wife that said, curse God and die. Why didn't God kill her and leave the kids? It was all working for good. And you've got to go 42 chapters before even a Job who had not committed any sin, and his only problem was, God, how could you? It doesn't make sense that the righteous should suffer. It makes no sense that the righteous should suffer. But read the book of Job. I don't hear a lot of prosperity preachers preaching the book of Job. They'll preach about Solomon. But let's, let's talk about Job. He came before Solomon. He came before Moses. God even let satanic schemes against one of his servants uh, happen, and he gave him permission, just don't kill him. That's the only boundary. What about Esther? How would you like to be a young, beautiful Jewish girl and all of a sudden taken and asked for sexual favors in a pagan king's harem? A very intrusive thing to take this girl that's been raised with a covenant people by a dedicated uncle in Mordecai, and all of a sudden you're in the harem and you've got to answer the king's whistle anytime he wants you for sexual favors or anything else. How could God be using that kind of evil? Finally, Mordecai says, I thank God brought you to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is part of the mystery of this verse. On and on they go. And so we know that God is working in all your circumstances, even the negative ones. Maybe the parents he gave you. Maybe the neighborhood you grew up in. 
I don't know what all has gone in your life up to now, but he said, all things God's working together for the good of those who love him. And this is interesting. Those who love him becomes a noun description of God's people. That really, he didn't say for all the super-duper saints, because believe it or not, with all of our ups and downs in our love, and us being warned not to leave our first love, and being told by, John, or by Jude, keep in the love of God, there is something that sets you apart from all other people as a born-again child of God, and that is he's turned you from being God's enemy to being one who loves God. That's our category. Now, we do it weekly, don't we? We do it inconsistently. We're up and down. But that is a categorical statement of my people are a people who love me. Now, uh, that, that's a great thing. You need to ask yourself, do I love God? Or do I love his gifts? Do I love what he does for me? Do I love, would you serve God if there were no gifts like Job? Have you ever come to say, I'm resting in you, Jesus? I'm satisfied with all that God has made you for me. You, I love you, God. I want you. Heaven would not be heaven without Jesus. Or would you want heaven without Jesus? And we have to watch. It's easy to love God's gifts. Bless my marriage, bless my marriage. Bless my kids, bless my... What if he doesn't? Have you come to want him? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and body. And if kindred should go, if loved ones should go, if all relationships should go, you could say, take this whole world, just give me Jesus. It works for those who have come to find God is their supreme treasure. He's not just an errand boy to satisfy your every wandering desire. He's not a rabbit's foot. As one man said, the rabbit's foot didn't do the rabbit much good. How'd he wind up on a chain? It didn't do him any good. We're not people of luck. We're not people of chance. We're people that God has sovereignly blessed, and he's saying, one, I'm working in all your circumstances. Two, I've done something for you that is supernatural. I've given you an ability to love me back. And see, I am the great treasure. Three, uh, I like the phrase, God is working. The events of our life are not necessarily good in isolation. It's they are working together, syncretism as it were, or to uh, work out a whole, when all the parts fit together, God is able to take negative events, evil events, and in his mastery and in his master plan, he's able to work out a product that results in good. Now, what is the good he's working out? This is the big debate. They can all work for good. Some make this material blessing. Uh, they measure it physically. In the context, the good that God is working out, he's working it all for the good of you being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. All the events are designed for the ultimate good that when I get through with you, you are going to look like my son. That's the ultimate good. And it says that God is so determined that we will be molded and shaped this way that he says, you people 
that I've called according to my purpose. You've been foreknown by me. I had an intimate relationship with you way back. I'll come back to this later, and we'll look at these five very deep and wonderful words that are often debated. Those he foreknew, and I take to be a, he had an intimate relationship with, he uses of Israel in Amos 3, you alone of all the nations of the earth, Israel, I foreknew. It's more than just previous knowledge. It meant to enter into a relationship with. So he knew those he called way before time, and he predestined them to be conformed to the likeness of his son. He didn't predestine them to heaven or hell. He predestined them to look like Jesus, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Predestination is a nice word. It means, it really comes to the word horizon and previous. And it meant God set the horizons of your life before you even had a life way back. And the word came to be used of to fix something, to appoint something before it happened. And God says things like this, I knew you before the foundations of the world. Does God say that in his word? Ephesians says it, 1.5, Revelation 13.8. So just take God at his word. He's speaking here. He's not stuttering. I predestined you. He said in Ephesians 2.10, You've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God has ordained before the foundation of the world. You mean God's got my life outlined? What, I, I'm not a robot. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Well, that, that is the life of people without a shepherd. But if he is your shepherd guide, he says, I've set horizons. I've set appointments. I've set a destination for your life. And ultimately, that destination will be you will be conformed to the image of my son. And I've set those limits around your life. Marvelous, marvelous promise. It's not to make you break out in hives because you don't like the concept. It's put there to comfort you. God will get you there. Now, he says, finally, what I've got a purpose for in your life, what I'm working towards in your life, is to get you to be someone that reflects my son. Two ways, two ways he's going to transform us. He's going to transform our bodies in the context that is the primary thing he's probably going to say. And then we see throughout the New Testament, he's going to transform our character. Number one, he says over and over, Philippians 3.20, he shall change our body, metamorphosis, he shall transform our bodies into a body like unto his own. So in the midst of the groan and the suffering and people who are longing for the redemption of their body, he says, don't worry. In your salvation, God is going to transform you into the likeness of Christ physically. One, you're going to have a glorified body someday. The groan will not remove you from having a glorified body. Your suffering will not you will not be short of this glorified body. I am going to change your very body. Think of it. God is changing your body right now in the way that he uses it. He lives in your body. He said in Romans 6, I want to use your body as an instrument of righteousness. And then he says, I'm going to glorify the body. And 
we don't get this very much because we don't study Aristotle and we don't study what the Gnostic teacher said that matter is evil, the body is a prison, the body is worthless, it's, it's contaminated, it's bad. God never says your body's evil. The body is not evil. And God says, matter of fact, I've got a plan. I'm going to transform your body so that in heaven, some way, we're going to have a new body. Will we look like what we look like now? Well, minus all the warts, minus whatever, but we're going to, we're going to recognize each other, aren't we? We're going to eat in a glorified body. Uh, we're going to get transported so we would really have a body. We won't be floating around like spirit beings. We will have real corporal bodies. And he's saying, I'm going to transform you, and I'm going to change your body and make it just like my son. It'll go from being mortal to immortal. It'll go from dying to being would never die. So we have a glorious prospect that someday in eternity, God is going to give us glorified bodies, and this is a part of our great salvation. And he's telling them, in the midst of all that you're going through, whether it be cancer, whether it be whatever kind of exit you have, don't worry. I'm going to even change your bodies and give you a body that can never die, never experience another ache or pain. What a wonderful promise. Now, Something he does not mention in the five things here of I foreknew you, I predestined you, I called you, I justified you, I glorified you. He never said anything about I will sanctify you. He just kind of left it out. But as you look at the rest of the uh, New Testament, I'd like to introduce you to the concept that he wants to change the way you act and behave. Look at Romans 12. Let me just lay some groundwork. Look at Romans 12. Well, that sounds good. I preached at a church last week. I said, I don't hear anything. I said, Romans, you know, I love to hear the paper, even if it's the bulletin. Just make me feel like you're turning there. Uh, Romans 12, 2. Stop being conformed to the pattern of this world. And it's a word schema. Quit being poured into the scheme. But be metamorphosis, be transformed in, in the renewing of your mind. God wants to change the way you behave by renewing your mind. Now look at 2 Corinthians 3, a promise he says about us believers that pertains to our, our behavior and our whole life. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we who with unveiled faces, he said that Israel's face is veiled. They don't know that the glory of the law has parted. But we, who are part of the new covenant, with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, and we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." We are in the process from where God found you when he saved you in a transforming process from one form of glory, one form of uh, uh, arrival, as it were, of growth, however you want to say that, from glory to glory. And it's likeness to Christ, likeness to Christ, likeness to Christ. 
I want to read one other verse. Turn with me to Luke. This is a profound passage. We don't look at it in isolation very much, but just what it says here. Luke 6, 40. If I asked you to take me to your teacher for life, who would you take me to? And listen to what Jesus said in Luke to his disciples. Luke 6, 40. A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Who is the true teacher for the believer? Should be Jesus Christ, right? So he's the model. He's the teacher. He's holding classes. Have you been attending? He's in session. Now, if Jesus is the teacher, and if he is going to conform you, let me uh, begin to deal with how he would want to change you. What's on the curriculum? Uh, The first thing maybe, this is not, I don't know the divine order necessarily, but let's take Philippians 2.5. Let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ, who always wanted to be first. They were bickering. They were having contention. First four verses. They weren't getting along. There was rivalry. And to end the gridlock attitude, he says, let me tell you about Christ. And get this kind of thinking going on in your mind. That though he were God... He was not afraid to empty himself of all the external manifestations of who he really was, but he's willing to take the form of a servant, and the word form is just as much of the form of God, the form of a servant. He really became a servant. It wasn't just an outward act. The word morphe means something that's internal that works its way externally. He really bought into being a servant, and he gave up privileges, and he was willing to just put it away, the emptying of Christ. And in the chapter, I love that he gives three men that were on their way to acting that way. Paul said, I follow this attitude, and I'm being poured out like a drink offering. Timothy follows this attitude, for everybody seeks their own interests, but Timothy seeks for your welfare. I have few men like Timothy. Epaphroditus at the end of the chapter. He has worked himself to the point of sickness and death, for he has made up for your lack of labor. This man is living out the self-sacrifice attitude of Christ, even as Timothy, even as Paul Let this kind of thinking be in you. God picked you as a piece of marble that was egocentric, autonomous, self-governing, always right, and he's in the process of changing the way you think about God, yourself, and others. And this is Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard from Valley Bible Church in Hercules. Our series taken from the book of Romans here in chapter 8 called Life in the Spirit. As we close out our program, we would remind you that copies of the program are available when you mention the date of the broadcast you're interested in. You can also, for a gift of $15 or more, take advantage of the series today's message was taken from. Ask for it by name, Life in the Spirit. And again, for a gift of $15 or more, we'll send it your way. 
One other option is to obtain the entire eight-set series out of Romans for a gift of $100 or more. Now, bear in mind, this is 47 sermons altogether. It's the entire book of Romans, start to finish. And again, for a gift of $100 or more, we'll send it your way. And please remember that as you do gift these amounts, it goes back to the radio program. It helps us continue the ministry here on this radio station. In fact, we would love to hear from you if you have a prayerful interest in becoming a TFT sustainer, which will also include a quarterly newsletter. Take a break with Pastor Phil, which is our weekly devotional video and a once a year special gift. No gift is too small. No gift is too large. We just look for regular faithful givers that we might continue the ministry of the gospel here with Truth For Today on this radio station. Would you prayerfully consider that as you contact us? Here's how to reach us. 855-833-9864. Now, that's our phone number. Again, toll free, 855-833-9864. If you'd rather write to us, the address is 1511 M. Sycamore Avenue, Suite 278, Hercules, California. The zip code is 94547. Also, stop by our website, valleybible.org. You'll learn a lot about us, who we are, and what we believe. In fact, if you'd like to join us for worship, you're in the Bay Area, plan on visiting. Service times are at 9 and 11. Directions and more information again at valleybible.org. You can also find us on Facebook. All you need to do is get to the Google search in Facebook and look for Truth For Today Radio. And there we are. Please like the page and keep up to date with all that's happening here at Truth For Today. And then come back and join us next time for another broadcast of Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard. 